If you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. And I jumbled it up because I just wanted to drive Stephanie crazy while I was out of town trying to catch up with my outline. Two texts we will be looking at, chapter 6, 11 through 13, chapter 7, verses 2 through 4. Okay. And Stephanie says, do you understand that you missed a part in there? It's purely intentional. Let's pray and then read the word of the Lord. Father, I thank you for the privilege to worship in spirit and in truth. Father, the joy of our salvation. The great honor to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, I thank you for your word that you've presented and preserved for these centuries a gift to us for the perfecting of our souls. Father, I, I thank you for your precious bride, your church. Father, may we who are part of this great creation understand the honor and the privilege of being joint heirs with Christ. Father, as we look at this and we understand what the Apostle Paul was dealing with, Father, I ask that you open our hearts. Open our souls that we may hear, we may see, but Father, we may act in the preciousness that you have given to each of us and the indwelling of your Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, would be witness to all in Christ and Christ alone. Beginning in verse 11, chapter 6, our mouth spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Chapter 7, 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before, you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I'm overflowing with the joy in all of our affliction. I... uh, I looked at this, and it's, it's a little bit tough. I mean, you, you get caught up. I don't care who you are. When you're reading your Bibles, you start dropping into chapters and verses and things like that. And it dawned on me that what he has done there, he has bracketed something. Okay? Uh, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1 is that bracket. And on both sides of it, he's dealing with a, a context, a, a topic. And, and I want to keep it in the context of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is dealing with ministry. Okay? And, and, and it starts, the foundational part of ministry is the integrity of the minister and the ministry. And then around that is what you're going to have to deal with. And the Apostle Paul is dealing with a church that he spent two years in uh, teaching 
and working and living among the people and going from house to house day and night. And I, I mean, it, and it's pretty impressive if you really think about it. Um, I know that you guys don't want me coming over to your house every evening and, and hanging out, but uh, it, it is it is in these two texts in chapter seven and, and in chapter six, um, he's dealing with a topic that he doesn't ever really name. And yet it's there. Uh, those of you who were with us back a few years ago when we were in 1 Corinthians 13, remember teaching on love? And the greatest of these is love. And that's what he's talking about here. Okay, but yet I have to keep it in the context of the book. And, and I had to think about this for a little bit because um, in, in my life, uh, I have had the awesome privilege of, of speaking and in and, 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 and intimate settings with some amazing pastors. I mean, I mean um, amazing pastors. And, and I always had a question that I asked each of them at different settings, you know, as they got a little more comfortable with me and all the rest of it. Um, and uh, it was always the same. It's kind of, I found it fascinating. And, and my question was the, what is the hardest thing in your ministry? That you've been in ministry this many years, whoever it was. And, and, and I've talked to some big ones. Okay. But I'd always ask them when I had the opportunity, what was the hardest thing in ministry? And, and it was kind of amazing because some of these guys were like in California and some of these guys were like in Florida and in Georgia and Tennessee, uh, Ohio, different places that I've traveled. Uh, even in Russia, and Yuri Sipko, the previous president um, of the Baptist Union for Russia, uh, I asked him, and he said the same thing. Hardest thing in ministry. Because, see, if you're saved today, you're in the ministry. Now, you may not be effective. You may not even be doing anything. But it still doesn't mean you're not in it. Because once you're saved, you are an ambassador to Jesus Christ. Okay? And I have to look at my ministry of being the senior pastor at this church for over 18 years. And I, I kind of have to agree with them. What is the hardest thing in ministry? And I see it in the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. Being falsely accused. We might call it misjudged. Uh, you know, uh, have you ever had people who knew what you were thinking? What a wonderful group of individuals. And it all comes back when you are falsely accused or misjudged. They're dealing with your personal integrity. If the person is effective for the kingdom of God. Now listen, if you're ineffective, you have not committed, you're not obedient, then you're ineffective. You are not going to be accused <laughs> falsely. The only time you're going to be falsely accused is if you're having an impact. And part of the false accusation is... People will say things that aren't real. Now, I hate to tell you this, 
But there is nothing harder to defend than an untruth. Okay? Somebody's just making an accusation. And, 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 I, and it happens all the time. I mean, you, you can be in the secular workforce and people can accuse you of things that ain't true. In this day and age, it is the same as in the Apostle Paul's day and age, that if I'm going to hinder God's work, I'll throw out an accusation. Because if I can hinder God's work, then I can hinder God's doing. And it's easier, you know what, it is easier in my life, and, and I've talked to numerous people in my life, it is harder to deal with failure. I mean, it's easier to deal with failure. It's easier to deal with weakness. It's even easier to deal with sin. Because in, whether it's failure, weakness, or sin, um, you just face it. You confess it, you seek God's grace, and sometimes you will even do it on behalf of others. You may have to confront a person's sin. You may have to confront a person's weakness. You may have to confront a person's failure. But you just do it, and you bring the truth to bear. The Spirit of God empowers, and then this confessed, and everybody moves on. Because... If you've been in the ministry any length of time at all, you know God's power can change. And when God changes the situation, you move on. But when there's a false accusation, that's tough. Because when there's a false accusation, how do you deal with it? Right? What do you do? I mean, I bring truth to bear, but if the person is falsely accusing you, truth really means a lot to them, doesn't it? You can't change it. Those who spread are not interested in truth. So, when you've done everything that is possible to bring truth to bear, do you understand on a false accusation, you still don't fix the problem? People, they'll come and they'll say, well, I have this concern. It's, it's like if the pastor goes up and he hugs a woman. Okay? If she's an ugly old woman, nobody says a word. Okay? If she's cute as a button, why is he hugging her? You ever seen that? I've had to experience it. You're like, gee whiz, excuse me. Okay? So I try to hug ugly and good looking. I don't know. <laughs> I've tried not to hug. I ain't happening. I've already tried that. I mean, I walk up to a Russian brother and hug him. And what does that make me gay? So, but you see what I'm trying to get at? Because, well, why are they doing that? I don't know. Wait till I get into the holy kiss. Says, greet everyone with a holy kiss. And I tell you what, them people in Russia freak you out when they do it. 
It ain't nothing like having a toothless old man come up and just lay one right on your lips because he loves you. And you're like, oh, jeez. I walked right in because usually I got good at it. I could kind of turn and get it on the cheek. But I had to catch me once, man. You're like, oh, busted. Because that's how they greet you. If they love you, you get one. And if you ain't paying attention, you won't get your cheek around. And ah, you just sit there and you go, oh, mercy. Listen, the people who have these concerns are these people who have these issues that they have doubts about are really not concerned about the holiness or virtue. And they are definitely not in love with righteousness. They like to act as if that's important. But it's not. They are not motivated by love toward the individual. They're not motivated by their love for the one they're attacked. There's nothing like sitting in your office, being hanging out in your study of Scripture, and have someone come in and say, can I speak to you? And I said, yes. The first thing I want you to know is that I love you. Oh, great. <laughs> that means you ain't going to kiss me, right? <laughs> and you know what? I, I, I try to... try to I, I fought with this in the past on... What causes people to do this? Okay. And I don't know. I mean, I can give you some ballpark things. Sometimes it's revenge. Uh, sometimes it may be jealousy. Um, I think in every case, it's something to do with self-seeking. But I do know that anybody who says, well, I think what he is doing, or I have this concern or things like that, most of the time, they're not really longing for the purity of truth. Um, nor are they worried about the unity of the church. Because I've also had them where they want to bring the accusations, but they won't bring it to your face, so they will get a coalition of people to try to drag off and fight against you. You know, and, it, and it's funny because I always hear that they are seeking the good of the one they're attacking. They are seeking the Lord's honor. And I hate to break the news to you. It is really difficult to deal with. It's very tough to deal with. Yet, in these situations, as I've watched with the Apostle Paul, I've seen in some ministers' lives, when you speak the truth, they'll attack another way. It's very common. And it's, it's a really common for spiritual leadership. And it's very difficult. Like I said, it's, it's, it's nigh on impossible to defend. Because you roll the truth out and that is not really the issue. And yet, when I think about this, and, and you know, and I can think of my own ministry. Uh, I've had numerous different people in, in my past have tried to bring accusations against me. I remember at one time in this church that the Sunday school classes uh, were mad that I was the pastor and or some of the teachers and was trying to get all the Sunday school classes not to go to worship service. And they knew that the church would run out of money within a month and I would have to leave and then they could go get who they wanted to be the pastor. And I, you're like, <laughs> all right. And you know why they, they said uh, <laughs> it's the first time I was accused of it. It wasn't the last time I was accused of it. They said I had a character flaw. I was like, 
Yeah, that's why I needed Jesus. What was yours? <laughs> so, I mean, duh. <laughs> they call it a sinful nature by theological. But, you know, what do I know? Uh, and yet I think, and, and over these, I, I, I've been 10 years in the Corinthian letters. And I cannot think of anyone who faced more aggressive, relentless, unfair attacks than the Apostle Paul. And I want you to understand something. In the Corinthian letters, it's not coming from lost people. It is coming from false teachers who have swayed believers. Okay? You know what? And it's funny because in the Apostle Paul's life, there was nothing genuine about any of the accusations. It's just lies. And, you know, they would... Maybe they were doing it for the money. I don't know. Maybe they thought, if we can run Paul out, I can take over its pastor and take over a mega church or something. But they went after Paul. Uh, he was being extraordinarily effective in his ministry. And what they do is let us convince the church that Paul was a hypocrite. Perhaps Paul was wicked. Uh, perhaps Paul was a false apostle. He's a liar. He represents himself. He's not representing God. He's doing it for his own. He wants his own glory, his own vanity. And I think the tragedy that is in it is many, as always, in the church, bought the deception. And, 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 it's, and it's almost like you're like, wait a minute, he's just spent two years with you. Going from house to house, it's an intimate relationship. You know what he's doing every day. And all of a sudden, someone's coming in and saying, well, he's not really an apostle, and you're believing him. And they were turning on Paul. And it's, it's, I, I don't know if it's vanity that's behind it of the individual accusing or, or what, what, what causes it. Um, and yet Paul was concerned about it. And that's part of the reason 2 Corinthians is written. He's trying to defend his integrity. He's laying his integrity back out on this position. Now listen, I want you to think about something because when the Apostle Paul is defending his integrity, do you understand he's not doing it for his own sake? Okay, if I defend my integrity, it isn't because I'm concerned about my integrity. Okay, I want my integrity intact as Paul wants his integrity intact is that it is for those who listen's sake. Do you get that? Listen, if you won't believe God's spokesman, who are you going to listen to? You ever think about that? See, Paul knew that. Listen, if you ain't going to believe the man of God, you got one other option. And Paul understood that. So Paul needed to restore confidence in these people. And after two years of intimate walking with them, he's kind of concerned. And you know what's amazing, I think? And it's, it's like in this church, I've watched it. I can see it in the Corinthian model. They have heard him. They have seen him. But you know what? You'll bring new people in and they haven't heard as much. They haven't seen as much. They haven't walked as long with. 
So they're easier to persuade away. You know, in this church here, there's a group of people in this church right now have been with me since 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Almost 19 years ago. Okay? And they're like, you know, they can accuse Terry, but we've watched him. We've seen him. We've watched God grow him. Okay, but if you just come in, you're like, well, I don't know. I thought it's just like a guy got mad at me because he see me coming out of the liquor store. What was the pastor doing in the liquor store? Submitting a bid. What? Yeah, I'm going to change the light fixtures in there. But you know what? He didn't have the audacity to come and ask me, hey, I saw you at the liquor store. What was you doing there? But see, he didn't know me that long. I just seen the pastor in the liquor store. But see, that's what happens in the Corinthian model. Paul's been gone for a little while and he's over in Ephesus. And all of a sudden you got new people have come in. They've come to salvation. And all of a sudden the guy's saying, you know, the founder of this church, the apostle Paul, he's not really an apostle. He was doing it for himself. He's over in Ephesus right now making big bucks. And you know what? You're going to have people go, wow, what a con man. But I think about all the accusations that were leveled against the Apostle Paul. But I think the one that hurt him the most, and it would be the top of his, I'm going to defend this, is that Paul did not love the Corinthians. Okay? That the Corinthian believers were not in his heart. He only manipulated them. He was using that congregation of people for his personal gain. He had no care. He had no concern. He was only using them. Okay. They're coming against his love. Does he love them? Listen, any shepherd has a love for the sheep. The great shepherd loves his sheep. Says John's gospel. Therefore, the great shepherd's hirelings, what? Love his sheep because I'm a hireling, but the congregation is Christ. How can I not love Christ's flock? Right? So to accuse a shepherd... To accuse a pastor of not loving the flock. Wow. See, any shepherd, true shepherd, should be able to look at the whole of the congregation and say they are beloved. And yet, some accused the Apostle Paul that he had no love for them. And he's already dealt with it a couple of times. Chapter 2, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not so that you would be made sorrowful, but you might know the love which I have especially for you. See, he's already dealt with it. This is speaking of the harsh letter that we do not have record of. Chapter 3, verse 2. You are the letter written in our hearts. Known and read by all men. Chapter 12, verse 15. <clears throat> 
I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Verse 19. All of this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ. All of you upbuilding and beloved. So you see that he's dealing it. It's one thing. And you know what? This is the cute part about this because it is one thing to say, I love you. Okay? It's another to prove it. Um, I, I, I watch, I've, I've done a few weddings in my years. And it's funny because they always want to read 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> and bless your little hearts. Do you understand that love is a verb? Okay? It isn't my favorite phrase, icky sentimentalism. Okay? It's a serious pain in the butt. Okay? Because it doesn't say love if they love you back. It just says love. It doesn't say love if there's a hope they'll love you back. Maybe I can sway her to love me. Doesn't say that. That's why I always... I said, have you ever read that verse? Well, yeah, but it's so powerful. I said, yeah, the Bible's powerful. <laughs> There's certain things. It's like I had a pastor the other day tell me, he says, you know, I've been 40 years. I hope I don't have to go 40 years in the wilderness. I feel like I'm just out in the wilderness. I said, do you understand that the wilderness is a punishment for disobedience, right? <laughs> what? Well, yeah, that's what that thing was. And they're like, oh, I never thought of that. I said, you might want to use a different illustration. <laughs> just just an idea. <laughs> don't, don't run around telling your congregation that I'm in the wilderness. They'll tell you to repent. <laughs> How do I prove it? That's what this text is. Paul says, I've already proved it. See, this text defines the nature and the character of love. And... It's defined on how he dealt with the Corinthians. In just these six verses, these two passages, it is a very clear definition of love is. And you know what's amazing about it? He doesn't use the word. He doesn't use the word. If you back over to, and you might as well keep your finger here for a long time, because we'll be going back and forth to this for at least a few weeks as I go through these ten points. Verses 4 through 8 of chapter 13, love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffer, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Those are all verbs. Okay? Now, if you think about this text that I, we're looking at now, I have two texts and they book in something that's really amazing in between them. You know what it is in between them? Do not un- associate with the unholy. Do not associate with the false teachers. And yet in these two texts, he's saying love. He's saying love. And yet, it brackets this section in the middle that says, I don't want you around unbelievers. I don't want you around unholy people. I don't want you to be around a person who claims the name and don't walk it. 
Stay away from the false. Stay away from the unholy. But on both sides of it, he says, this is what real love is like. It's just not the love. There's too many times that I've watched this. This is not the love a pastor has for the people. Okay. Now, listen, I've already been adamant about it. He should love the people. But if I look at the context of the book, he's still dealing with the ambassadors of Christ and they should love even as Christ loved you. It should be the love of every believer, the action of every believer. It should be seen. Every believer should have an attitude like this for others. This is love. This is what love looks like. This is what love thinks. This is what love feels. This is how love acts in these verses. Our mouth, verse 11, was, has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. Okay. The text here is really kind of cool. Uh, you know, normally when we read um, heart here and it's open, we think of uh, cardiac or something to that effect. Uh, it literally means an enlarged heart. Okay. I have a spiritually enlarged heart, Paul says. You ever thought about that? Spiritually enlarged heart. Paul says, I have an abundance of room in my heart. And he's basically speaking here of the Corinthians. Now then. The first time this enlarged heart understanding is ever used in Scripture is all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 4. First time it's used. Now then, if I mention King Solomon and you te- and I ask you, what did God give him supernaturally? What would you tell me? He asked for something. Wisdom. Wisdom. You know what? You're close. You're real close. But you know, it's that typical thing. Have I read the whole verse? Verse 29, 1 Kings chapter 4. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment. And a breath of the heart like the sand that is on the seashore. Wow. Wow. He had wisdom. He had discernment. But he had a heart wide enough to take the sands of the seashore. That's kind of cool. That's really amazing if you think about it. The Apostle Paul is using the same terminology. I have an enlarged heart. 
God says, I made Solomon's heart so huge the sands of the shore can fit it. That's pretty cool. A supernatural, now think about this, a supernatural capacity to love people. Because you know what? There are some people that are easier to love than others, aren't there? Okay? And to love those that aren't as easy, you need divine intervention. Paul, King Solomon was so wise, so discernment, and yet his heart was as wide as the endless beach. Had love. A massive capacity to embrace people into his heart. You know, I've, <laughs> I've had some dealings in the past with people <laughs> who come, I'm going to get in trouble, oh well, um, who come from a psychological background. They either did it in school or one of my uh, pet peeves is uh, quote-unquote counseling. Okay, and if you listen to it, it all has Sigmund Freud behind it. Okay, and I never understood it because psychology itself, the stu- it's the study of the soul. Blind, naked, and depraved man's going to do what? What? Really? You know, well, you can train people. I can put people in prison too. It keeps them out of all kinds of trouble. You'd be amazed. All right? But, but it doesn't fix the soul. And I get people who want the psychology thing, and I keep telling them it's, you know, and I've gotten a little, not really. Um, I don't waste as much time on it. I just look at them and say, it's a lie. You know, I used to try to explain to them that it's a self-centered way of manipulating things to your benefit that doesn't ever work. Okay, and they all look at me like, but you don't. So now I don't waste that breath. I just said, no, it's a lie. Man can't fix the soul. If man can fix the soul, then they don't need Jesus. I mean, that's about as simple as it gets and, 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 you know, saves me conversation time. One of the things that I've learned is, is that when it comes to loving It has to be divinely inspired or it doesn't work. Because every person in this room loves to your advantage. I don't care who you are. When you think about love, it's what's going to be in it for me and I love you for it. And that ain't the part we're talking about here. It's a supernatural capacity to draw people in. And the psychologist and the counselor says, well, you put boundaries on your love. That's how you keep yourself healthily, mentally. And I always respond the same way. What were Jesus' boundaries on his love? Okay, now if I'm loving for my own self-gratification, you probably ought to put a handful of boundaries up. But if you're loving as King Solomon and have an enlarged heart that the sands of the beach can sit in it? There ain't no boundary. There ain't no boundary. 
It's a massive capacity to embrace people into your heart. You ever thought about that? That's amazing to me. That is absolutely mind-boggling to me. Paul is telling us that Paul's heart is open wide. He's saying, Corinthians, those people that would accuse me of not loving you and only manipulating you, they're lying. You have seen my heart wide open to you. Go back to your text there, Corinthians. I've spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, and our heart is open wide. Okay, he uses a plural pronoun right there, ours. Okay, because he wants them to understand that he's not self-centered. Why? Technically, if you're a Christian, your heart should be open wide. To who? All people. All people, especially to those who are in the church. Now, listen, part of my love is that if you're doing stuff that is disobedience to God, that is rebellious to God, I'm going to point it out because I love you. Okay, and usually by the response, you can tell whether they love you or not. Paul says, I have plenty of room. We have plenty of room for you. Don't even think that I don't love you. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, right there in the middle of this thing. I do not speak to condemn you, but I have said before that you are in our hearts. Hearts are wide open, wide enough to completely embrace you. It's the same phrase that he uses in Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. I have you in my heart. It's like John running around saying, the beloved of Christ. I'm in Christ's heart. I love that phrase, you are in my heart. If you think about it, it's beautiful. My heart is large enough to completely embrace you, Paul said. Now, you know, it's amazing to me, because if you know why, this is the fourth letter he's wrote him. Okay, we only have two. And you think about what he's dealing with. Go back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, the first six chapters, he's blistering them. And then chapter 7 says, now concerning things you wrote me. Hey, I mean, up until then, he says, you're arrogant, you're puffed up, you're boastful, you're, you're fools. And then he just goes off. And I'm sitting there going, he's dealing with a bunch of... And yet he says, my heart's still open to you. And these people are crushing him. They're accusing him of not being an apostle. They're accusing him of being manipulative. They're accusing him of a false teacher. Our response is always going to be the same. Well, I'm wiping my shoes off and walking away. Paul's saying, no, you crazy people. I love you. I was with you. You've seen me. You've heard me. You've been with me. You are in my heart. They had rebelled against Paul. They were conspiring with liars. They were believing the heresies. 
And yet he's still reaching to them in love. And yet he even makes a statement. Is there no room in your hearts for me? Do you understand that love doesn't do that? I've already told you that love is patient. I've already told you that love doesn't keep record when wronged. I've already told you this. I've already told you that there is no arrogance in love. I've already told you there is no jealousy in love. You've already seen it in my life that these things are true. I've already told you and I've already showed you that love never fails. And it's obvious or he wouldn't have written 2 Corinthians. He would have said, fine, follow the false. No matter how they were treating the apostle, you see evidence of Paul's response that he had a supernatural capacity to embrace him. He still had them in his heart. In these two passages, Paul defines love, never using the term. And you know what? If you look at the apostle's life and you just take it in the Corinthian text, you see a living illustration of genuine spiritual love. If he was proud, if he was self-centered, if he was a hypocrite, if he was false, then his response to these people would be anger, bitterness, self-justifying. He would be hostile towards them. But he wasn't. His heart was wide open to him. Why? You're in my heart. My heart embraces you. He loved them. His love was so massive that he wasn't going to let it go. I will not let you be deceived. And you know what? Whatever they did to him, it still did not change his passion for them. He had no anger. He had no bitterness. Now listen, there's hurt and sorrow. But you don't see no retaliation. You see sadness. And yet, even though they wounded him, he loved them no less. Now, let me tell you something. That's ministry. That's ministry. They'll come after you. I have been hurt more emotionally And in my heart, sickened in my heart by the church than I ever was with the bikers I used to run with. But it doesn't change the fact that still God's church. This is an example of how agape works. How do you Love unloving people. It's hard. It's hard. And you know what? 
There will come times in the ministry when they're going to make false accusations against you. And you know what you have to do? <laughs> Go back to King's floor and say, dude, I need some sand. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Oh, open my heart so I can get a little more on this. Because it's difficult. I cannot tell you how many times that I have wept bitterly in my prayers for the saints of God and what they were doing. I can't even tell you. I don't even know how many times it is. In a lot of cases, God just flat out removes them. Okay? But it still doesn't mean that you don't think about them. You don't, you're not concerned about them. And, and you're like, gosh, I wish I could see them again. But it will only be in God's timing. And that's ministry, people. And the Apostle Paul lays it out here for us in 10 points that you have there. It is truth, affection, oneness, purity, humility, forgiveness together, confidence, boasting, and joy. Because we have a supernatural ability to embrace people in our hearts. And you know what? In some cases, they don't even want to be in there. But still don't change it. And we'll start moving through these in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and his love. Father, I know that it was you who opened his eyes and opened his soul with a capacity to love as there's times I I have no comprehension of it. And yet, Father, you have given each and every one of us that same ability. Father, let us bow our knee unto you that we may understand, that we may listen. And that, Father, that If our hearts are closed even now, you begin that process of opening them that we may embrace in the totality of Christ those people that you bring to our lives. Father, we love you. And may our love for you grow with every breath you grace us as we take that love and pour it on our fellow man. To you and you alone, my King, in Christ, in Christ alone. Amen.